You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Well done is better than well said. And that's a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Well done is better than well said. So welcome to our first show of 2024. It is January the 6th. So happy to have each of you here with us. And I'm actually thinking about moving to another platform and potentially shortening the show. Uh, I've been doing this now almost 18 years and doing it really the other authors to really give them a lot of shine because I don't talk about my books a lot on Off the Shelf, uh, hardly ever. So I, I do it for other authors, but thinking about making some changes this year. So you guys can hit me up and let me know any changes you'd like to see. Then I'm thinking about making some uh, on my on my own end. But I want to welcome you to our Saturday, January the 6th, 2024 show. For those of you who have been with us 18 years, Thank you for being with us here for 18 years. There's a lot of work that goes into bringing these shows on uh, to you. And I want to thank our guests and all of our listeners who tune in each week. There is still time. There's still time for you to tell your friends, your book lovers, your neighbors to to join today's show now. And you can join. they can join in the chat room or they can call 347 994 Three four nine oh, and again that is three four seven nine nine four three four nine oh. There's still time to catch today's show as we introduce you to uh, uh, today's author. But before we do that, I, I, as we start the new year, it's very important for me anyway. And I've seen others say that this benefits them to practice awareness, to be aware of what you're feeling, what you're thinking as you go into the new year. A lot of people have enthusiasm. They're going to go get it this year. It's going to be a good year. Before you know it, the days have gone by. We already are at January the 6th. It seemed like it was January the 1st just yesterday. It's already six days in. So practicing awareness, paying attention to your thoughts, your feelings, your dreams, maybe start journaling. And and, and a book that you might find helpful is Heal Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. It's a beautiful book of poetic writings that hopefully will open you up to more of what's really going on inside of you so you can make this year and every day amazing. Hill Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way by yours truly, Denise Turney. Please go treat yourself to a copy. It's in ebook, paperback, or in hardback. And now let us go and meet today's special off-the-shelf guest. And our guest this morning is Douglas Wiseman. Douglas is the author of a young adult book series, and he loves to write stories about friendship, relationship bridges, and finding beauty in the grotesque and interesting ways strangers find common ground. He has also worked in a safari game reserve. How interesting. His short stories have been published in several periodicals, including Three Elements Review, Wild Mustard, and Lantlet Underground. Douglas is the author of the book, Life Between Seconds. Love that title. He also offers fiction writing, screenwriting, and travel writing development services and more. He earned his Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of San Francisco, and he and his family make their home in Los Angeles. I encourage you to check Douglas Weissman out online at his website, and I'm going to give you his website URL. It's douglasweissman.com. D-O-U-G-L-A-S-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N.com. Again, that's D-O-U-G-L-A-S-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N.com. I think you will absolutely enjoy visiting his website. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Douglas. Thank you so much for having me. That was an incredible introduction. Oh, well, we're happy to have you here with us this morning. So Happy New Year to you, too, as well, and wishing you and your family a wonderful 2024. Um, as we get started, the first three or four questions I'm going to ask you, Douglas, I ask every guest 
who comes on the show, going back to my early days when I used to just go right into the questions and listeners gave me feedback. They wanted to know a little bit about the guests before I started asking about their books. So to kick off today's show, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Absolutely. I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley. So anybody who has heard someone say, like, you know, whatever, we used to be really popular when I was growing up. But that's that's where I'm from. That's where that accent comes from. And it was a pretty established middle-class Jewish household. And then when I was about 12, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And that is one of the most impactful moments I remember hitting my family. Uh, I've always had a very close family, not just my brother, sister, and parents, but also cousins, aunts, uncles on both my mother and father's side, my grandparents on both sides. I still have one grandparent living. They all lived until their their mid-90s and beyond. So it's always been really really close-knit, and that was the first time I've really seen my family on all sides get roiled. And from that moment on, I was really eager to make sure that I didn't wait for things. Uh, Specifically, it really inspired in me this idea of, well, I want to see the world. I've always wanted to see the world. Even at 12, I knew I wanted to travel, and I thought, well, I'm going to do it the moment I can, and I'm not going to wait to do it, where at that time it was mostly you retire, and then you would travel, so you'd wait until your 60s or 70s, and then that's when you take these big trips. And I was like, no, I'm going to see if I could do that earlier on. And then by making that decision then, when it came time to be able to do it, I did it, and that's what has helped inspire my writing ever since. Wow. Oh, my gosh, my mom passed when I was seven. And it's it's really odd how uh, people respond to events. You could just, like now they say there's 8 billion people in the world. If you We don't all have like a zillion different experiences. It's generally the same kind of experiences that a lot of us have, and we just respond to it differently. And it 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 just takes us down a different path the way we respond to it. Ten people respond to the same stimuli differently, and they end up in a different place. It's so odd about that. And good for you that you took that, that, that tomorrow's not promised, so let me do what I want to do now. Now, as a kid when you grew up, Douglas, what did you dream of being when you grew up? That's a really good question because I, I really don't remember – having that dream career when I was growing up, I, other than maybe wanting to be a fireman when I was like four or five, because every four or five year old wants to be an astronaut or a fireman or a police officer, or, you know, one of those things that or a veterinarian, uh, my four year old right now really wants to be a veterinarian and a princess. So I, so I remember having that kind of feeling, but I never really remember having this aspirational idea of what I could be uh, even when I was a teenager or a little before. And it, it actually affected me very uh, roughly. I remember it, it, it's even as a 13, 14 year old, I felt like I'm supposed to have it figured out. I'm supposed to have that idea of what I want to reach towards and then drive my goal towards that. Cause I would see all these other kids who wanted to do that. The kids who wanted to be a doctor and thought I need to go to Harvard so I can get a medical degree. I'm like, I just want to make sure I get into college. Like, I don't care It's like, I just know I need to have the education, but I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And then as I, as I grew up, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be creative, but I kept pushing against that because everything you hear from everybody around you is always, Oh no, creative Mm. arts. There's no money in that. So you need to figure out what you want to do for money. Uh, And then, so it was really, I mean, that was my inner push and pull that, that argument inside myself is, well, this makes me happy and I love it, but it's not going to make me money, so I'm going to try and do this other thing uh, until finally I just, once I was, I was about three years into college, and I was just like, oh, I'm going for it. I'm, I'm doubling down. Wow. I'm committing to writing, uh, and I'm going to be a writer, and I don't know how it's going to work, but I've, I've made it work so far, so I'm going to continue Oh, my it. goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now I can only imagine how many people you listening to this now and in the archives that you will inspire just that little, those two 
responses uh, that you're going for now, and then the, you're going to go for the, the writing after you know, so many people say, no, don't do it, don't do it. Now, who or what inspired you to pursue writing? Where did the, where, your love for books, who, where did that birth from? What's the genesis of that? Yeah, it's actually just I, I come from a family of storytellers. They're always telling stories of one kind or another. And I remember how, just how interested, even when I was little, how interested I would be about listening to stories of my family. Or because I live in Los Angeles and I grew up in Los Angeles, we would constantly drive by. I remember this very vividly. We would, we would drive by the former home of Harry Houdini, the famous magician from like the 1920s. And every time we drove by, I would ask my dad to retell the story of what happened because the, there was a big fire in his house and it was like the original one burned down or part of it burned down. And uh, then the story of when Houdini died, he said he'd come back and, and all these things. And I was just so taken by that story and then taken by the story of my great grandparents and how they, how they immigrated to the United States and the, how, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but the story goes that my great grandfather they kind of they came into the United States illegally, and my great grandfather felt so guilty about it that a week later he went and snuck onto a different boat so then he could come back in legally and register at Ellis Island. And I again thought it was so fascinating that this is my family history and just all of these stories that I just wanted to tell stories. I wanted to hear stories. I wanted to share stories. And as I grew up, I wasn't a big reader growing up, but my dad got me into books by giving me comic books. And so first it was comic books. Then it was short novels. Then it was a lot of uh, espionage and, and kind of mafia-based novels when I was in high school that I loved. Uh, and me and my dad would bond over those because he'd give me ones that he's reading. Then I got into more literary fiction and then YA fiction as that grew. So it's, it's just expanded from there, but it's always just been about storytelling. It could have been movies. It could have been music. But just writing is where I felt I had the easiest and best opportunity to express myself and share these stories. Man, I am just, oh, it's just so, an honor. We talk ourselves out of doing what we want to do, and we tell ourselves <laughs> yeah. what's already been done by others many times, and we say, well, they got a good response from it, or they got a good, uh, it turned out good for them, so I, that's what I'm going to do. And we don't, we talk ourselves out of doing what we really, really, really want to do. I really applaud you for not doing that. Now, in what ways did majoring in creative writing enhance your your writing skills? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I went to undergrad, I actually majored in Italian language and literature. So I had a minor in creative writing, and I, but I had this, and it wasn't the minor that I felt affected me so much, but it was this one instructor who I consider a mentor even to this day, and I still talk to him, and he's just getting incredible instructor when it came to writing, and he's an incredible writer. His name is Martin Poussin, and his, uh, he teaches at Cal State Northridge in Los Angeles. And he was just so encouraging to all students. It doesn't matter if the student was uh, showing promise as a writer or not, because I can promise you I was not showing promise as a writer in these courses. But I remember the one story that I wrote for his course that actually kind of flipped the switch that demonstrated, oh, maybe I do have something here that I can pursue. And he was so encouraging and he was so supportive. And he was also really quick to, to recommend some books to read. And they were not craft books. They were just, you know, books for fun, literary books, fiction books that he thought I would connect with and then find better uh, approachability to writing with, because I write, I write different. I write how I write and that's my voice and everybody has their own voice. But it, you don't start out with it. You kind of have to play around and figure it out. And I remember an interview with Neil Gaiman. He basically said he found one of his first manuscripts he ever wrote and tried to read it to his kid one night. And he was talking about how it was just kind of this puzzle piece of, oh, I saw Roald Dahl in it, and I saw this other writer in it. And every once in a while, I would find a sentence that was me, and that's how I found my voice. And I felt that that was me. I was kind of piecemealing together all these other authors until finally here's this one professor who supported me and encouraged me and I was able to run down that one lane where my voice was and expand on that. And then when I decided to go and get an MFA, I will admit full 
at, at the front, uh, I originally applied to an MFA because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I was like, this will give me a little more time to figure it out, which is the wrong way to approach getting an MFA. So I did not get into this program the first time I applied. I had to I had to go for a second round of applications, which I think was better for me because it made me understand why am I actually doing this. And for anybody who's thinking about getting an MFA, you don't necessarily need to. I mean, that's the truth of it. I loved my program. I loved the people I was with. And I think it accelerated my writing and my abilities and my understanding of my writing probably by like 10 years. So if I didn't get an MFA, I would probably just be starting out where I was finishing 10 years ago during the program, I would probably be figuring it out now. And that's what I think the value of it is. The value of an MFA is about the community you build and the acceleration of the education you get. But could you do all those things on your own? Yes, it's just a lot more difficult, but at the same time, you'd be saving a lot more money if you do it on you know, your own. I, wonder, I think a lot of us do go keep training and learning and doing things you got you got something good out of it, but uh, or you may you, you you turned it into something good, but to delay what it is we want to do, we just keep delaying it. We just stay in this yeah. training mode, and we never get in the game. So I think it's important oh, yeah. to watch that, and that you notice that about yourself is 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 really is really commendable. Um, and then I'm, 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 I appreciate you sharing because I was going to ask you a question about it around whether you should get an MFA or, or not. So really, uh, really appreciate you sharing that. Now, now we want to go in and start talking about your books and your writings and different things you offer to even other authors. But can you give our off-the-shelf listeners, Douglas, an overview of Life Between Seconds? Gladly, yeah. So Life Between Seconds is really about a 70-something-year-old Argentinian woman and a 20-something-year-old American man. I call him a boy because at 20-something, he still kind of acts like a boy. And the friendship they make and how their mutual friendship is going to either destroy their future or help them through their past grief. It's... It really is something that I find special, one, because I feel like you don't often see friendships between those types of, you know, older person plus younger person. I feel like it's a demonstration of how to overcome grief because we all feel it in our own ways, and it's demonstrated through the two characters and how they're dealing with their past, but also how those griefs chase us no matter where we are. And so it eventually becomes about confronting those, those griefs and the traumas that they went through and whether or not they're willing to open up to this new friend to help each other through it or whether they're going to remain closed off and just keep their heads down moving through life alone. Do they, do they know they're closed off? Do they know? Because Sophia's older. Do, does she know or is they just used to living the way they're living? That's exactly it. They both know that they're not being truthful to each other. They both know that the other person is holding something, but they've spent so long, one, one longer than the other, but they both spent so long being alone and pushing each other away or pushing others away and not wanting to share their grief and their trauma that they're willing to put up with the other person thinking, well, I have my secret. It's okay if they have theirs until it reaches a tipping point where they realize if our friendship is going to grow at this point, after they both have these their own individual ghosts chasing them, then now is the time that we have to open up to each other or not, and what will come of either way. Mm. Now introduce us to Peter. What's he like and what drives him? So Peter is playful but a bit aloof. He has spent time traveling the world trying to run away from the – the nightmare of his mother's suicide. And that's not a spoiler. Uh, you know about it in the jacket copy very quickly. So, But for, for me, a tangent, I'm, I don't write twists and surprises. I give everybody the information very upfront because I'm one of those people who likes to read to learn why, not what. So I, I kind of give people that. I'm, I'm going to tell you very quickly this thing happens, but we're going to go through the journey of how it happens and why it happens. Uh, and that's a lot of what this book is for both Sophia and Peter. But Peter's, he's playful and he's aloof and he is looking for connection, but at the same time he completely 
pushes himself away from connection because the last person he was connected with, his mother, left him. So now he's fear of losing, fear of, uh, fear of being left alone, fear of not being worthy of love, all those things. But he's not necessarily a recluse. He still goes out into the world. He still talks to people. He's still friendly, but he uses his trauma kind of as an illusion of closeness. So he'll say something very upfront that makes people think that he's very open, and then he doesn't have to actually share the things that really make him feel vulnerable. Hmm. Can you give us an example of him doing that? If, if just a quick example. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. So there's this one point where he's in Australia. It's a very brief moment, but it's demonstrating his travels and how he connects with people and what kind of keeps him in one place versus pushing him away to the next place. And he's talking to this one, this one woman who's a roommate and at the time, and he's basically saying, oh, my, you know, my mom is, uh, you know, she's far away, and I decided that I didn't want to be uh, close anymore. I needed to run. I needed more adventure. I needed more experience. I needed more this or that. And so he's using this idea of, oh, if I tell her that my mom's away, where it's, a bit, a bit of truth in the lie, a bit of truth in the lie, but I get it out there up front. She's not going to ask about my mom anymore, and but uh, I still look like I'm sharing. Wow, yeah, you know, you know that people do that. That's a good, great example. Now, Sophia <laughs> is a lot older than Peter. They're friends. How did they meet? So they meet in their dingy apartment complex in San Francisco and some uh, especially you know any any novelist who puts out a, like a first novel that doesn't use a lot of their own experience or even a veiled biography I think is lying I think that they put so much into themselves in the first novel that they write one way or another uh, so I took a lot from my experience in San Francisco including my apartment complex which was really uh, a very interesting space and I loved it for what it was, but at the same time, it was definitely, it was, a, it was a studio that was so tiny. It didn't even have a kitchen inside the room. It was just a room with a bathroom, and the kitchen was down the hall and shared by every other room on the... Oh, wow. So I, I, I made it a little larger for these characters, but at the same time, in my head, the place is still very small. And so they're both, Sophia and Peter, are looking for space within this tiny, cramped, complex in a cramped city. San Francisco is so compact. It's built up. It's one of the few cities in America built up, not out. Uh, so it's so compact. And Peter finds himself on the rooftop of the apartment looking for space. And there's this garden here and it's Sophia's garden. She puts the garden up there and she's up there to tend to the garden and finds Peter. And they, and, and she kind of sees this, you know, sees a lost soul in him. And, wants to connect, understanding that he's lost in some way as she is. And she never lost this maternal feeling and wants to then turn that towards him, even though she hasn't done that since the loss of her daughter. Again, not a spoiler. It's very clear in the beginning of the story. <laughs> so, but uh, so it's, those are the things that bring them together. He's looking for a maternal figure in a way. She's looking to be maternal in a way, wow. but it's, and they're able to share in those moments. Did you intend for this? So this story sounds incredibly interesting to me. Did you intend for the story to, uh, its structure, the shape, the characters to be the way they were before you ever put the first word down? Or did it kind of happen as you continued to write this story? I always wanted Sophia and Peter to have a friendship, but I wasn't sure how it was going to unfold, where it was going to go, the effect it was going to have on each other. There were some, I had these very lofty ideas when I first started writing the book because of what I thought it needed to be rather than what it ended up needing to be. For instance, I thought there needed to be this, uh, there was originally an additional little girl that was going to be in trouble that they came together to save in some way, or there was another character that they had relationships with that became like this interesting triangle, not necessarily a love triangle. Peter and Sophia never had a love connection, 
uh, a romantic love connection, but this other character would that would throw everything out of balance, and and that's where I wanted to focus on. And I was like, but it's not, but it wasn't about those things. So as I wrote more, I am an exploratory writer, so I write by the team or a pantser, as people would say, as opposed to a plotter. And for me, it was just okay. I'm going to put these two in a scene. I'm going to give myself a prompt and see what happens and how it comes out the other side. And I did that with most of the things, with most of the chapters, until I got to a point that I thought, oh, this is, okay, I know the ending now, so I'll write the ending. And then I just mapped out every chapter. I used cue cards. Wow. This was, I'm a geek. I'm such a nerd like this, but I had so much fun doing it. It is one of my favorite things. I went through every chapter, and I put, I put a note card, color-coded. So pink was for Sophia, green was for Peter, purple was for if they shared the same scene, uh, white was for if these other two, Peter and Carly, who's another character, were in the scene together. Those types of things. I put it all out on my floor, wrote down what every chapter, kind of the theme of every chapter or what happened, just a one-sentence summary. And then I moved things around. Okay, this needs to go here. This should go here. This should be the start. Now we're going to the end. And then I was seeing, all right, well, now what am I missing? So, all right, I have to, this plot point doesn't get hit. I have to come back to this or this gets left behind. I don't need this anymore. And so that's how I was able to develop the structure. But in terms of how I originally thought it, it, it's very, Peter and Sophia's relationship is how I always thought it would be. But the rest kind of came through the writing. Oh, interesting. Oh, my God. This is like a a very, the story is very intriguing to me. Now, what makes Sophia, what makes her a memorable character? Oh, that's such a good question because I'm so, I honestly feel I'm more connected to her as a character than I am to Peter. She's my favorite, and I'm so, she just has this piece of my heart. And I think what makes her so memorable is her hope. She, yeah, here's a woman in Argentina in the 1970s whose daughter has disappeared, and she has no idea what happens to her, and she is kind of, she's a very traditional woman at the start, like a little fiery, but very traditional in terms of being the, being the house, uh, the home worker, raising the child, supporting her husband, making sure meals are there, all those things. And it's not until her daughter disappears that she has this drive to do something more, to do something different. And at first it's just to find her daughter or to learn about what happened to her daughter, thinking that there's hope there that she'll be able to get her back. But that evolves into being a part of something greater, part of something bigger to help other people, learning that there are other people in the same situation who lost their sons or brothers or fathers or daughters or mothers to to try and get them back or learn about what happened to them. And so she becomes a part of the movement, Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, to try and force the government for accountability or even just saying, where are our family members? Let us know. And that hope first in trying to, first for her daughter, Valentina, then in the absence of her daughter, Valentina, then in the connection she makes with these other mothers mm-hmm. looking for their children. And then in the connection she makes with Peter and the hope that their friendship will be able to, to strengthen them and that she can be there for him and he for her. So it's, no matter how bad things get, there's always just this glimmer of hope in her that something good will happen. Wow. Oh, my gosh, this is just touching me for some reason. What time period... <laughs> It's in San Francisco, but what time period? She's growing up like she's young, Sophia, in the in the seventies. It sounds like what time period is does life between seconds? What time period is it actually occurring in? So the Peter and Sophia scenes take place in the early two thousands, and the the Sophia when she's younger takes place in the seventies. Uh, kind of leading up to the junta and then during the junta, and so it's a bit it's a bit historical fiction and then a bit contemporary historical. Uh, part of that is because I needed to have a time frame which Sophia would still be uh, a little more vibrant and uh, of a certain age, and also because I realized that 
I don't like telling stories that have cell phones involved in them and the Internet. So anytime I'm able to write a story that I can skirt around those technological things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that chance. <laughs> okay. Now, how, oh, my goodness, how did you come up with the title, Life Between Seconds? Does the title have a, oh, a special meaning? And how did you come up with that title? The title, I think, was the hardest part of writing this book, actually. <laughs> I, had a, I had a different title beforehand that was very – it was a working title. I knew I was not going to use that title. But I am one of those people that puts such an emphasis on titles that I always want the, – the book can have its problems, but if the title's perfect, I'm like, it's okay. The title is everything. <laughs> so, so I was trying to figure out what the title would be, and then I was writing one day, and – I remembered I remembered what kind of inspired part of the book and it just clicked together. So just for a little bit of backstory, I was traveling in uh, South America and then a bit in Mexico. And when I was in Mexico City, I went to visit Frida Kahlo's house, which is now a museum. And in her kitchen, she had two clocks. One was stopped on the time that she divorced Diego Rivera, and the clock right next to it was stopped on a time which she remarried Diego Rivera. And I thought it was such an interesting idea to stop a clock on a time you wanted to remember as opposed to kind of taking a photograph. And so originally this was, I thought it was such a cool idea, but I was such a novice writer that I was not able to apply this. Originally, Peter, as a character, was supposed to not have memories. Basically, he only had memories in watches. And if he needed a memory, he would take a watch, look at it, and that's how he would recall some information or whatever. But I just couldn't – it just became too much for me. So instead, I use the memory – I use the watches still in the book, but the watches are like, are like photos. So he always travels with three watches on his arm, and they're all the three memories that he wants to carry close to him, and he can look at them and remember what's going on every time he looks at them, just in the same way that we'll pull up a photo on our phone every time we want to look at something. And with that moment, as I'm writing one day, I realize kind of this, I was talking about the second hands on the clock and thinking, oh, so much life can happen between the seconds. And oh, I was like, yeah. oh, that's my title. That's my title. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh my God! And I, as a writer, the title, the book, and the book cover—I think they're the two number one things that will attract a reader. The title and the book cover, because they—they've got to, something's got to appeal before they even want to read the description or the synopsis. So it's the cover and the title. I think those are the—you get those right. You're—you're you're in a good—you're good, in a good start for sure. What have readers mm-hmm. been saying? about life between seconds. They have been saying some great things that just make my heart happy. Uh, I mean, there are some who talk about just how, just how heartwarming the relationship is between Peter and Sophia, how beautiful the language is, which always, I'm one of those writers who I want my language to be beautiful. uh, So I will, I will just toil over a sentence until it sounds right to me. And those two things have just been always making me giddy. And then there are, there's even one person I remember, I don't remember verbatim, but the review specifically said that it's a slow read, but a beautiful read. And it's a read that you want to spend your time in like a warm bath. And I was like, oh, oh that's, wow. that's exactly what I, that's perfect. That's it. So, cause I, it, it is a slow read. I will, I will absolutely hand that to anybody. It is a slow burn. You know, we're not diving into an espionage thriller on page one, uh, but that's part of, in my head, part of getting to know the characters so that when things do finally happen, or at least when the big things finally happen, you are so emotionally invested in these characters. Yeah. You can't turn away. Yes. Oh, what a good review. Oh, my goodness. Now, you've also written, Douglas, and published short stories. And for our off-the-shelf listeners, we are speaking with Douglas Wiseman, and he is the author of Life Between Seconds. We're going to now start talking about some more of his writing, including services he offers other authors. And you can visit Douglas Wiseman online at douglasweisman.com. 
D-O-U-G-L-A-S-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N.com. Again, DouglasWeissman.com. And the, the Life Between Seconds sounds so intriguing. Now, you've also written and published short stories. So which do you prefer writing if you do have a preference, short stories or novels? I love writing novels. I write short stories, but they're not my favorite. And the reason is because I am incredibly verbose. So I feel like a novel gives me and even forces me sometimes to just take a tangent, spit it out as far as I can, and it becomes part of the novel, where a short story is all about concision. And I have to be so precise with my language to make sure that it all fits into this nice, uh, neat package. And it's, it's a lot harder for me. But it's a great writing exercise and that's really why I write short stories because it's a writing exercise that forces me to look and think differently than writing a novel. I've heard people say this. I've heard people say the shorter the piece, the harder the writing. And you you would think I remember yeah. being in school, the English teacher uh, give out an assignment, how many words? Oh, 500. You think okay, that's a lot easier than 2000. But then as I, as I started writing, it's like the shorter the piece. I mean, that writing has got to be tight. You have got to have that yeah. story. So, and with the clarity and the tightness, you just have a few words. To t- it seems like it is the harder. Like a, I think a poem is a lot harder to write, a good, good poem, sometimes than a short story oh, yeah. or a novel. Just, it's just, it has to be so, so much clarity, and you have a short amount of space to do that in. Now, you also... Uh, for writing services, tell us about the writing services that you offer. Absolutely. So because of my writing experience, and it's across a lot of different sections, so there's fiction writing, screenplays, and travel writing, because <laughs> as much as I love writing fiction and it's my favorite, uh, my day job is actually as a travel writer, so, which is still really cool. But, but that's where that's where I put most of my focus during the day, and then I shift to fiction towards the evening. But I offer developmental services, editorial services, uh, conversations. I mean, trying to demonstrate the importance of community, but also the importance of having quality feedback. Because I think as writers or, well, as writers or as creatives, we all are both nervous to share our work, but also disappointed when we don't get feedback that can, A, feed our ego just a little bit, but also, B, give us tangible information of how to make things better. And that's where a writing community or at least someone who is well-versed in the type of writing you're trying to do is important. Because I remember showing my writing to people who weren't writers, and they'd come back with something along the lines of, it's great okay, but why is it great? Like, I need to know what's working here. Or, eh, it's not Shakespeare. Yeah, that's also not helpful. I know it's not Shakespeare. What can I do to make it better? Where do I need to work? Is it the language? Is it the character? What's going on? And so one of the hardest parts about being a creative is finding that community. And this goes back to doing an MFA. It has that built-in community as structure to a program to make sure that you're able to to move forward with your work. But there are platforms now that give you that same sense of community. It's just a matter of, this is again, the MFA, why I I enjoyed it. During the MFA program, everybody's kind of forced to focus on the writing, yours and everybody else's to make it better because of the environment that you're in, the degree you're working towards, where outside of that, when it's uh, a collective or just a, a platform, a free platform that anybody can sign up for, the, you don't have enough skin in the game necessarily where people, everybody wants to hear their own feedback you know, on their own work, but they don't necessarily put in that same emphasis or dedication to other people's because life happens. Everybody, and I don't judge that. It's just making sure that you have that quality and direct connection and, and focus from everybody on your stuff. And so that's where I come in. Uh, and so anybody looking for that help, I am eager and always excited to hear about their stories, hear about where they want to take it, why they want to write this story and, where, and why they want to take it to where they want to take it, and what structure or format they're in, what ideas they have, how much they've already written. Uh, one client I've worked with recently has this 
incredible family saga based in Maine, and it spans about 150 years, but also one of the main characters is kind of the, the paternal ghost who you start out with his story, but then he's there as the only one who can see him and his family are the, the women of the next generation. And so, and he's trying to kind of guide the, the family to success after falling on hard times. So it's really fun, really interesting, but you just never know the way that people are going to tell their story. And that's why each story is beautiful. Now, do you help fiction writers take a story from the ideal stage, they haven't even started writing, to publish books, helping them with their story, character development, editing, or helping them land a publisher? How, where, what's the beginning where you come in if somebody were to work with you and then where you, this is, this is the finish of, of the, your services that you offer? I absolutely have done that before, and it's really just based upon what what a person's, what a writer's needs are. And so one writer is just, oh, I need developmental help with the story I've already written. Where can I take it? What can I do with it? Um, what is working? What's not working? Those types of things. I've also spoken with a writer on, this is my idea. What can I do with it? And then other writers that is, yes, this is the idea. And so it's all about how much dedication and time you have. Uh, obviously, what your price point is, because doing just talking about an idea and where it should go versus developmental edits on the manuscript you've already worked on versus all of it together, including working on the query letter and finding a publisher slash agent, uh, you know, they all are different timelines and all require a different set of focus and understanding that it will, it will be hard for different reasons each step of the way. <laughs> but I am always here. I'm always here for all of them, whether it's individualized or the entire package from kind of a soup to nuts. Mm, and that is, it's good to have somebody, like you say, and I've been a member of writers' critique groups, but again, and they tell you if you're going to participate, you can't just submit your uh parts of your chapters and, and wait for feedback. You have to give others meaningful feedback as well to stay in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing, so perhaps somebody like you to take it from, because an editor, you've written a story, and they can come back and tell you suggestions on development, and, and you may have to go back and and sometimes almost start over. Or But if you have somebody helping you before you start writing, that might be more advantageous. I've never done that, but a curious uh, uh, some people might find that more advantageous to have somebody who has a lot of experience and depth at, with writing to help you before you start writing and then after you start and as you start to develop your characters, dialogue, et cetera, uh, to help you with that as, as well. Now, you also, do you also have a young adult book series? I do. The young adult book series was, the first, was my first published works. And they are very awesome in their own way. I'm very proud of them, but they're also very different. And I'll tell you that the reviews on those ones from people were definitely not as glowing as the ones on Life Between Seconds. But that's okay because I understand where they're coming from. And the the series is the Deep Freeze series, and it's a collection of six books that focus on – if focus on the idea that the world has frozen over due to climate change, but there's a group of orphans in San Diego who are trying to escape kind of the, uh, the breakdown of society to protect themselves and wind up on a old cruise ship. And we kind of go off on adventure from there. It was uh, it's a very it was a very exciting thing because it's very different. I was actually it's called a a pat, like a book package. So rather than my idea being pitched to a publisher or an agent, it was a publisher who had the idea that was looking for writers, and I was approached. This is another thing about an MFA where 
it, it can help give you connections to the industry, but this it's very you know dependent upon the program naturally, or even just luck. And I got lucky that this company, this publisher, reached out to my program. I had just finished, so the program sent out some news, uh, some letters to people, and I was one of them. And so I responded immediately, like, "Yes, I'd love to. I'd love to get involved. What can I do?" So I sent in writing sample to them. Then we went over the process. What stories are available to choose from or the, cause they have just the outline of six books. And so I was like, Oh, this one sounds good. I'll take it. And, but it was such a quick turnaround. It was, I had six weeks to write each book and then another Whoa! week. Yeah. And then another week to revise it. So it basically six weeks oh to, go to the editor. Then the editor comes back and says, okay, these are the changes that need to be made. Then I had one week to revise it, make changes, do whatever and then move on to the next book. So that's one of the reasons why, to me, the, story, they, they, the stories are really cool and really imaginative, and I love them. Uh, but whenever I read them, I'm like, oh, I see. If I had more time, I would have changed this, or I would have done this, yes. or I could have done something else. Yeah. So, I could, I could I, write I a them. book. I so cool. Oh, my God. I could write a book in six weeks. But to edit, you got to give me some months. I got to need some months. I can't. Yeah, You're one week right, to, to, to right. look at it and – Oh, my goodness, that is just, like, not enough time. So they're probably just pumping these books out. So they're selling enough to be able to keep doing that. So I'm switching now again, and, and kudos to you for being able to do six books that fast is, is, is impressive. And there are writers who are their publishers, et cetera, and some of themselves are pushing themselves to put out a book uh, either once a month or once every three months. How they're doing that, I don't know, but that it just takes me a while to really, really get a book to where I feel like it's ready to re- be released. Now, how I'm going oh. back to the travel writing because during the Great Recession, I did freelance writing for five years. That was my bread and butter, and it is a lot of work, and it's very different than novel writing. The travel writing's been popular for a while, but. For our listeners who might be interested in getting involved in that, how popular is travel writing? I think travel writing is more popular now than ever, and I don't have any data to back that up, but based upon my experience, based upon how many travel-specific websites there are out there that are succeeding, that are making money, travel writing is hugely popular. It's just a difference of angles and perspectives. Uh, so Pico, Pico Ayer, who I love, has this great, uh, great kind of um, thought-provoking, philosophical perspective on writing. So he'll travel, and it'll be about you know, the birds or the way that that instills some emotion to him from his childhood, which I love. But it's very different than the practical, you know, these are ten things you should do when you're in Rome. And so there's kind of a place to meet in the middle as well, which is very popular where it's, yes, I'm telling you about, and this is where I think that travel writing is the most helpful. And I will, anybody who's listening, this is the secret sauce, I think, to travel writing. It's not about the vague, and this is also actually a secret to fiction writing, I think. It's not about the vague descriptions of things. It's about the sensory details that make the experience yours. The more specific the experience is to you, the more universal the experience becomes, which is a weird, a weird thing to wrap your head around, right? So, for instance, if I'm talking about well, when I was living in Rome and I was sitting at this fountain eating a gelato with my wife and my dog, and we're all just staring out over the city, and you can hear the cars below and the wind rustling through the trees, and the gelato drops into my lap, and now I have a chocolate to stand on my pants. Uh, it's just Yes, that is very specific to me, but there's going to be somebody out there who's like, I had that same experience. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I dropped a lot oh, of Oh, you can just see and feel what you're experiencing. And that makes it personal. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Now, so is getting it involved possible? is, uh... oh, sorry, I was just, just to the no, point. No, 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 go ahead. Involved. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Things have changed over the years of getting involved with travel writing, but if you use, if you implement those same ideas, there's there's plenty of it out there. There's a lot of cohorts now where travel writers come together so you're publishing on one one space and it's more important now because of the rise of ai most of those places that publish blogs or like travel uh, travel websites that publish blogs or 
websites that are trying to give you the best landmarks to visit on the on Route 66 or those things, they're looking more and more for those writers who actually have the experience of that because people, just like me or you, want to know that this is the experience you've had, so you're not going to send us, true story, by the way, and <laughs> to an AI-written article on the best food destinations in, I think it was Calgary or Montreal, where they listed the food shelter in the city because it was so it was Googled so much that the AI wrote, this is the popular place to visit when you're in, when you're, oh, I think, Toronto, God. when you're in Toronto, visit the food shelter. So it's, right? I mean, that's, that's the horror of it. It's like, we want to know that the experience happens so we can kind of brace ourselves. Oh, this is an actual experience that sounds good to someone who's done it, and therefore it, it sounds incredible to me to do it. Uh, of course I want to go parasailing over the Great Barrier Reef, uh, right? But, but I don't want to go if the AI is going to tell me you should actually go to the food pantry in uh, Sydney, Australia, before you go to the north and go parasailing over, because that's, that's ridiculous, right? I don't know how yes. to wrap my head around how ridiculous you, you know that. what I've heard authors say? They say? I've heard somebody say, do you think AI will really uh, like take jobs away from authors? And I've heard people say, no, if you are very, a quality writer, and like you say, you make it personal, and you write in a way that AI could, it just can't do. I don't care how advanced it becomes. You can, your own personal experience, AI is not aware of. It cannot tap into your personal experience. It's in your brain. So if you yeah. can do that and do that well, like your example you gave, then you should be fine. And 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 what it might happen is distinguish authors who are more generic from from uh, a, right with more depth, and maybe the ones who are more generic will be in trouble. That's that's uh, that's what I'm hearing. Now, is it possible to earn a full income as a travel writer? It is. It is. I am lucky enough to do that. So I freelanced for years and years until I the grind got to me, right? It's, uh, and, and I'm sure you had a similar experience when you freelanced. It was doing the work was, not, was no problem. I love doing the work. It was doing the work and then also putting in the work to find the next client to make yeah. sure there's work after the work I'm doing is done. That was the hardest part for me. So I was able to – I was working mainly with one specific company at the time, and I eventually asked them to, to go on full-time, and they – we're very excited about that. So I work with them full I still work with them full time. During the pandemic, of course, everybody got laid off from every travel company because who's, who can travel when you're in the middle of a right. pandemic and can't go anywhere? But I was brought back on, and that's where my day job is. I'm a travel writer for a specific travel company. and uh, But I also know many writers who are travel writers that freelance and do it often. Uh, but it's a very different experience. My experience, because I have traveled so much in the past, I'm able to utilize that in my current job where there are those who travel consistently now and write the story now as they're traveling or right back or when they get right back from traveling to, to publish a piece. So it's, they're just kind of two very different angles to take, but there's so many avenues. That it's, it's never just one. I've heard of travel writers and technical writing. Those are two that that that, that are. Uh, but AI might start doing that technical writing now. Would would someone you kind of alluded to this uh, as we come down to to the last few minutes in the day show? Would someone need to travel broadly to be a good travel writer? People want to work remote. They want to. I can just see somebody's eyes lighting up. Like, oh my God, I want to do that. Would somebody need to travel broadly to be a good travel writer? You kind of answered that question. So if you haven't been somewhere, maybe you, in the future, if not now, it won't be as effective. Would you recommend they travel yeah. broadly? Well, so I think it's actually less travel broadly and more travel deeply. So it's not necessarily that you've been to – so I've almost been to 50 countries, and but it's been – I, I moved abroad. Yeah, and I love it. I love it. I'm just I'm eager to get to 50 before I turn 40. That's my goal. Um, but I, I lived in Europe for a bit, 
when I was in college. So I traveled around, uh, I spent a year traveling around there. And then when I finished college, it was the great recession. So I was like, well, there's no job waiting for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a year traveling. And then I came back and there was nothing, another, another time of like, well, what am I going to do with my life? I didn't get in the grad program. Uh, so I went to South America for five months. And then when I finished my grad program, I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go to Africa for five months. So I did a lot of traveling on my own for all these different reasons. And I'm able to use that. But everywhere I went, I had to give myself a unique, specific experience. So it's not just, I always use Rome, probably because it's one of the most popular destinations in the world. Uh, if you write another top 10 about the things to do in Rome, it's not only been done, it's been beaten to death. There's so many lists about what to do in Rome, and they're all kind of the same thing. Go to the Forum, go to the Colosseum, go to the Vatican Museum. Uh, we get it, because it's not about those things. It's about what deeper experience do you have that makes it specifically yours that then makes it universal. Going back to that idea of dropping gelato on my pants, right? If you happen to be in Siena, Italy, during the, their horse races that take place in the summer, you write about that specific experience as opposed to just visiting Siena and saying, here are the top things to do, because you're going deeper into it. You know the restaurants that you want to go to. You know the exact dish and what it tasted like and the aromas of the wine. You know why being around all those people in the horse race is incredibly loud and exciting, but then you can turn off and go right into the serene, bucolic countryside 10 minutes away and just get a breath of fresh air. I mean, these are the things that make travel writing exciting for people and interesting for people as opposed to just that list of go here, go here, go here, go here, go here. Because there's no real why. People don't understand the why. Sure, it's old, but is that enough of a reason to go? Yeah. you you're. I, I can see where your travel writing, listening to you, could actually even deepen, add more depth even. And I, I haven't read your novel yet, too. To your fiction writing, it, it, the the two might kind of uh, um, sh- help strengthen each other. Without, I mean, at a, at a maybe a su- subconscious level in your mind, but I can see that plan. We only have a f- it's like three minutes. I had wanted to ask you, what was it like, really, really quick, working on the safari game reserve? <laughs> oh, it was so amazing. It was so exciting. Every day was different. I at the time. I went thinking that I was going to be studying wild dogs, which was the focus of this particular uh, nonprofit I was working with. But then they put me on this project studying the panther, or not panther, excuse me, the leopard activity in the park. So it was me and two other guys, one from England, one from Australia. And our ranger, who was Catherine, was amazing and just so knowledgeable. But they had just gotten new lions in the park. And so a lot of the activity kind of, circled around knowing where the lions were because they were still trying to figure out their territory. So we had a lot of exploring cautiously that we had to do. Uh, but, and then we would, we would pick up the camera traps each day, replace the batteries, take out the memory cards so we could look to see what the activity was. We had to flag any time we saw a rhinoceros to let the rangers know where they were to protect them. It was a really cool, diverse experience with a really incredible group of people that gave me a very unique perspective on the wildlife and the local communities, uh, the way that they're tied together, and and just the beauty of the landscape and the animals was uh, unparalleled. I mean, it's something that I don't think I'm ever going to get. It's never going to match anything that I've done. Uh, And you're definitely right with saying how travel writing ties into my fiction. Uh, It is, I'm very aware of how it affects my writing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, you are just giving yourself loads and loads of experiences. Good for you. Where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of um, your book? Yeah, so Life Between Seconds is available on bookshops.org. It's available on Amazon. You could also find it on Target or Walmart if those are your places, preferred places to shop. Uh, I'm excited. I also have a new book coming out in April called Girl in the Ashes, so you can keep your eyes open for that one. Girl in the Ashes. Oh, my goodness, we are out of time. I had other questions I wanted to ask Douglas Wiseman, but we just ran out of time. So we want to thank Douglas Wiseman for being here with us on Off the Shelf. He is the author of Life Between Seconds. And coming out in April, give us a title again, please. 
Girl in the Ashes. Girl in the Ashes, Girl in the Ashes, Girl in the Ashes, and Life Between Seconds. Girl in the Ashes coming out in April. I encourage you to visit Douglas Wiseman. Isn't he so exciting and engaging? Douglas Wiseman <laughs> online at D-O-U-G-L-A-S-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N.com. Again, that's D-O-U-G-L-A-S-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N.com. Thank you, Douglas, for being here with us on Off the Shelf. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you came in midstream, no worries. Once the show finishes streaming, you can go back in the archive. Listen to it as much as you want. Share it, share it, share it with others. Especially the, I love the part at the start of, of the interview. You go back and listen to it, you'll, you'll see where he just decided to go for it. Because a lot of us need to do that, especially with January 2024. There may be something you just go for it now. So thank you for being here to our listeners. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have another awesome guest here on Off the Shelf Books. As I always tell you, you're incredible. You are awesome. I hope one day you really, really, really grab a hold of that. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself, Douglas. I'll send you an email to the show when it finishes, a link when it finishes streaming. Thank you, and bye for now.